with me with the reading of the word from Ecclesiastes 2, 14 through 24, 17 through 34, I'm sorry. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. And what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in this toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Thanks so much for that reading. Well, good morning. Uh, it's so good to be with you all this morning. My name is Taylor Fair, and I serve as the executive pastor at our Brookside Campus of Christ community. Uh, and it's just such a treat uh, to have the opportunity to be with you this morning, to worship together, and to uh, have the chance to lead us in uh, unpacking God's word in a time of teaching. Uh, it's especially fun to be here in your new space that's slowly getting less and less new, I guess, the, the longer it goes on. But it's so good to be in this space with you. Uh, this is actually the first time that I have had a chance to worship with our extended family at another campus uh, since my wife Ashton and I moved here uh, four years ago from Denver, Colorado. So you see a picture up there of, of me and my wife and our little dog, uh, Hudson, too. Um, but we moved here just over four years ago, or just around four years ago, and this is the first chance I've had to worship together. So thank you for, uh, for welcoming me into this space. There's also a reason that I'm especially thrilled to be with you uh, this morning, uh, because I could not be more excited about what is coming for the Shawnee campus this year. Uh, you, what you might not know is that your new campus pastor, Paul Brandis, was my youth pastor <laughs> when I was in middle school and high school. So he was in college, I was in middle school and high school. He was my youth pastor and my small group leader. So I've known Paul for a long time. Uh, I've actually known Paul since I was in eighth grade. And, you know, a lot has changed since then. For one thing, I don't have a mullet anymore, so that's different. A lot's changed since then, but one thing has stayed the same. That Paul is an incredible leader with a ton of integrity who loves Jesus and his family and the local church passionately. So I can't wait for him to be here and for you guys to have a chance to get to know him. Well, as we begin our time of teaching this morning, I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open that up and follow along in Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, the slides will be on the screen, too. Uh, but what I want to do as we begin is to ask everyone to consider this question. What are your greatest achievements in life? What are some of your greatest achievements in life? What are some things that you have worked at that you look back on now uh, with pride? What things would you say were successes or, or accomplishments that stand out as you look back on your life so far? 
Another way to ask this question would be to ask, what have you gained from your Monday work? Whether it's your current work or work you've done in the past, uh, whether it's work that you've done at school as a student uh, or in the office, in the workplace, or at home, whether it's paid or unpaid work, what have you gained? What are some of your greatest achievements in life? I just want to give you a minute to, to just think back and think about that question. As I looked back on my own life, as you keep thinking, something that I noticed was that actually Paul Brandis was a part of some of my greatest achievements. He was around for some of the, my greatest successes in life, some things that I look back on with pride that I never thought that I would actually accomplish. And so what I want to do is I want to let you in on a couple of those things this morning so you can see just really how far I've come and what things I've, I've been able to get done in my life. Uh, here's the first one that came to mind right off the bat. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in the middle of Kansas uh, called Sterling. And uh, we had a local restaurant. It wasn't that local. You had to drive 20 minutes to get to anything in Sterling. Uh, but we had a local restaurant there, uh, and this local restaurant was called Taco Bell. <laughs> and they had just come out. I was in high school, and they had just come out with these things that they called party packs, which are packs of 12 tacos. So naturally, this new menu item prompted my small group at church to wonder. And you might look at that picture. That guy in the middle is your new campus pastor. So this is a great story you can remind him of when he gets here. <laughs> Our small group at church wondered, how many party packs could we collectively eat in one sitting? So eight of us showed up at Taco Bell, and we ordered nine party packs, which if you're good at math is 108 tacos, plus they just threw in an extra one because they were like, good luck, <laughs> so here's 109. So we had 109 tacos, and we got working. Now here's the problem. Some of my friends didn't really carry their weight. So some people only knocked out like seven or eight tacos, leaving Paul to tackle 15 tacos and me to cram down 24. I'll say that again, 24 tacos. That's two party packs that I ate. And you look at me and you're like, you know what, actually, yeah, that makes sense, guy. Um, that checks out a little bit. But as I sat on the toilet afterwards, as one does, I couldn't help but think, yeah, yeah, you know what? We did it. We ate 109 tacos. But at what cost? All that effort, 109 tacos, but for what? What was the point of that whole thing? What did we really gain from it besides like bragging rights and digestive issues? What did we really gain from that? What was the point? Let me give you one more. A couple years later, one of my friends and I traveled to Chicago to visit our friend Paul Brandis. And uh, when we got there, Paul and I were sitting on the couch the first night we were there, and we both realized something. We realized that we grew up loving the same video game. And that video game is Super Mario World on Super Nintendo. So we both grew up loving it. And we, so on that night, we were like, hey, what if we tried to beat it all in one sitting? What if we tried to beat the whole thing in one sitting? So the first night we were there, we absolutely ignored his wife and my friend and beat this entire video game on one sitting. And we did it, and it was, it was pretty great. Fast forward to the next night. We're sitting on the couch, and we're like, we both look at each other, and we're like, man, I bet we could do that faster. And so we spent the whole second night doing it again, and we beat it faster. I'll let you fill in the blanks of how the rest of the week went. Five nights, same video game every single night. Our goal is to beat it in under an hour, and I'm happy to announce this great accomplishment of mine that we beat Super Mario World on the last night in 57 minutes. We were absolutely thrilled. It was an incredible achievement. We put a ton of effort into it. But as I look back now, I ask the same question I asked of tacos. 
Like, it's a great story. It's a great memory. It's a number I can point to and say, like, yeah, we did that. But we, I cannot overemphasize. We severely neglected his wife and my friend. <laughs> and we just played the same game over and over and over and over. And it's like, does all of that time spent in my life matter in the end? Now, it's, it's easy to admit the futility of silly ventures like tacos and video games, right? But if I'm honest with you guys this morning, I've asked those exact same questions about the work that matters most to me. I've asked those exact same questions about the things that I've put serious effort into, that I've poured my blood, sweat, and tears into in my 28 years of life. I've asked those exact same questions. And I'm confident I'm not the only person in this room who's done that. In fact, I'd venture to guess that everyone here this morning in some capacity, whether you love your work on Monday or hate it, whether you think you're in a dream job or a dead-end job, whether your work is paid or unpaid, whether it's recognized by others or underappreciated, whether you feel personally like you've achieved a lot or a little in life as you reflect on that question, You've probably wondered from time to time about that work, what is the point? What's the point? Like, is there any meaning in what I'm spending my days doing? Does anything that I've built or created or accomplished or put effort toward in life even matter in the end? Is it any better than tacos and video games? And that question actually gets at the heart of what the author of Ecclesiastes is asking in his book. The author of Ecclesiastes, he self-identifies as, as Kohelet. That's Q-O-H-E-L-E-T in English, Kohelet. Uh, and that word in Hebrew just means to gather or to assemble. And, and that kind of makes sense as a description of him, because he, what he's been doing with his life has been gathering experiences and assembling different experiments that all are trying to explore this one basic question. Is there any point in life at all? Is there any point in life at all? So he's been gathering and assembling these different experiences, and now he's gathering and assembling people, including us in this room this morning, to tell them what he's found out from his experiments. I was studying at a coffee shop one day, and a barista saw my, my commentary for Ecclesiastes sitting out, and he said, Ecclesiastes is the first book of the Bible I ever read. And I was like, really? And you kept reading? Like, you're still a Christian because of that? Like, that's kind of crazy. Because this book is a difficult book to read, isn't it? If you've been reading along with us and following along in this series, you've probably felt the difficulty of the book. Because Kohelet can be incredibly hard to understand. His thoughts sometimes seem like they're a little bit scattered. At times, he, sees, he feel, appears inconsistent, like he's saying one thing, then he says the complete opposite thing. Sometimes you leave the book, and you're like asking... I don't even know if I really know what this guy actually believes. He's pretty inconsistent. He kind of comes across as someone who's just absolutely restless, turning this way, turning that way, trying to find something to hold on to, something that, that, that promises fulfillment and happiness and actually delivers on that promise, something with meaning that has a point. And as difficult as that can be for us to follow at times when we're reading, it's also incredibly relatable to our human experience, isn't it? Maybe one of the reasons my barista kept reading was because of how well Ecclesiastes told the truth about the futility that we sometimes feel in life. Because we know what it's like to feel like Kohelet, don't we? 
to ask these, these hard questions about every facet of our lives. Our favorite music in television shows and novels and poems and art all explore these very same realities that plague us. And in the passages we're looking at this morning, Kohelet is turning away from pleasure, which we looked at last week, and turning toward our work, our Monday lives, the things we do with most of our time, whether it's paid or unpaid. Is there any point to work, is what he's asking. Spoiler alert, his conclusion is pretty dark. I bet you didn't guess it. It goes something like this. Here's what we could, we could say. If work is our only hope, we toil in vain. If work is our only hope, we toil in vain. Let's look at how he gets there. Would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2, and we're going to start out in verse 17. Here's how he starts. Verse 17, he says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun. So already the emotional level of the book is ratcheted up to 10 here. He's like, I hate life. I hated life. Why does he say that? He says, because everything done under the sun is grievous to me. That phrase that he uses, under the sun, is a phrase he uses a lot. We've already encountered it. We will encounter it more as we go throughout this series. That's just his way of saying all human activity. So everything that human beings do on earth is, is what's done under the sun, all human activity. And that word grievous that he uses to describe it is the Hebrew word raw, which means evil. So basically what he's saying is all human activity is evil, so I hate my life. Like Kohelet sounds like a super great hang. Why does this grieve him so much? Why does he have so much hatred? He uses another one of his favorite terms that you've already seen. Uh, in the ESV, it says, everything is vanity. It's vanity. That word that the ESV translates as vanity uh, is the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. And a, a helpful image for understanding the idea behind hevel is to think about a mirage. So consider a mirage. A mirage is something that looks promising, Right? A mirage is something that looks like it will satisfy what you long for most. It's something that, that looks like it will get you out of the weariness and the desolation of the desert. When you see it, you get your hopes up. What happens when you get to a mirage? You arrive and you realize it's not really there. It vanished as quickly as it appeared. And that is how Kohelet describes basically everything in life. It's like being a shepherd, but instead of herding sheep, you're trying to herd the wind. Like it's impossible. It's futile. It's fleeting. It's a mirage. And the more that he sees this perspective on life, the more he begins to hate it. And that hatred extends naturally to his work. He concludes that if work is our only hope, we toil in vain. And he gives us three reasons that he has for this conclusion. Let's keep reading in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's a mirage. So here we see the first reason that work is just as much of a mirage as everything else. From Kohelet's perspective, we toil in vain 
because success outlives us. We toil in vain because success outlives us. Kohelet is, is distressed here because any success that he gains through his hard work in life will be passed on to someone else eventually. In other words, even if his work gets him something, even if he gains something from his work and it pays off, he achieves something, it's going to slip out of his grasp as soon as he dies. Now this is concerning to him because he doesn't know what the person who comes after him will be like. He's like, will he be wise? Will he be a fool? Is there any point to working so hard to build something if the person who takes over when you're gone could just throw it all away? I like to think that that's probably what Nathan's thinking this morning, letting me come up here and preach. He's like, well, I build all this stuff, and I don't know if he's wise or a fool. One of my favorite novels I read recently is a book called Jaber, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Uh, and Berry writes about this small farming community in, in rural Kentucky. Uh, and there's this part of the book that's incredibly sad where he talks about a family that's called the Keith family. See, the Keith family, they built their farm from the ground up. They poured everything they had into their farm. They toiled day after day to make it what it was and to cause their farm and their animals and their crops to flourish. And your heart breaks with them when their, their son-in-law takes over and they watch him take on debt, destroy the land, and run the farm into the ground. We don't have to look far in our world for other examples like that, do we? See, the bottom line here goes like this. No matter how much we succeed in life, someone else either gets to enjoy it or possibly destroy it. Kohelet continues down this track, and it only gets worse. Verse 20, he says, I turned about, and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and skill and knowledge must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Notice how the language intensifies even more here. He started out with hatred and resentment, but now he turns, it sounds like almost intentionally he turns around and faces despair. He's in a place of despair because what's the point? What's the point of working so hard to really gain mastery over your work and your craft only to pass it on to someone else? Not only is this a mirage, in his view, it's evil. It's morally wrong. Here's his logic in this section. My toil is in vain because when I die, the fruit of my labor is completely out of my control. And see, that's actually his problem, isn't it? Is that things are out of his control. He's ultimately in control of any of the outcomes of his work, and that fills him with deep despair. He goes on in verse 22. What has a man... From all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And here we find the second reason that Kohelet seems to see this promise that we can place our hope in work as a mirage. Here's what we could summarize it as. We toil in vain, not only because success outlives us, but because striving overwhelms us. We toil in vain because striving overwhelms us. Here's the SparkNotes version of this point. Work is hard, 
Have you tried it recently? Works hard, right? It can be grueling and exhausting and draining. It can overwhelm us at times. I actually think that Robert Alter's translation of the Hebrew Bible captures the tone of these verses a little bit better than the ESV. Here's how he translates this section. For what does a man have from all his toil and from his heart's care that he toils under the sun? For all his days are pain and worry is his business. At night as well, his heart does not rest. This too is mere breath. That phrase, his heart's care, uh, it's meant to draw out the intimate care and, and the heart that many of us rightly pour into our work. And yet, how many of us can't relate to these descriptions? His days are pain. Worry is his business. At night, his heart doesn't rest. When we're anticipating a difficult conversation with a coworker the next day, when we just can't get the kids to sleep through the night, when we're worried that an entrepreneurial venture could dissolve at any moment, when our heart is weighed down with the fear that we have nothing left to contribute in our retirement years, when we're struggling to make good grades so that we can get into that college that we've been dreaming about, when we're preparing to preach a difficult passage in Ecclesiastes. Maybe that's just me. Toil can bring struggle. Heartache, hurt, anxiety, restlessness, sleeplessness. And this kind of striving for success and achievement also overwhelms us because it seems endless sometimes, doesn't it? Alter's translation says, all his days are pain. As one great modern philosopher put it, mail never stops. And Newman isn't the only one who's tapped into this idea. Consider these harrowing lyrics from one popular song about work. Some days won't end ever. Some days pass on, I'll be working here forever, at least until I die. Yeah, Huey Lewis and Kohella would have gotten along great with each other. Whether it's these examples, or, or Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, or shows like The Office, we connect with these not only because they're catchy or funny, but because they resonate so deeply with our experience of these apparently endless grinds of our toil and striving. Other artists are exploring this reality in even more chilling ways. I read an article recently about uh, an exhibit from two Chinese artists who displayed a robotic arm that was programmed to use a variety of motions to, to keep this pool of red liquid contained. And over time, what happened was the robotic, robotic arm's uh, movements started to change slightly, and it started to slow down a little bit. And here's one person's analysis of why that happened. Over time, the robot arm had slowed down as if it was tired of the eternal task it was programmed to perform. Tired of the eternal task it was programmed to perform. And I heard that, and I thought, what a picture of how so many of us feel. Work seems endless, and it's tiresome. And we ask, just like Kohelet, what for? What do we get out of our striving? What do we gain from our blood and sweat and tears? How can we spend so much time for something that yields so little fruit? And hidden here is the third reason that Kohelet implies that work is a mirage, and it goes like this. We toil in vain because satisfaction outpaces us. 
We toil in vain because satisfaction outpaces us. Now, this is a theme that he's already hit on multiple times in this book. I'm sure that we heard about it last week with pleasure. We're going to keep hearing it. But here's the form it takes on in this particular section. Even when we achieve something really special, the best moments that you thought of at the beginning of this message, even when we gain something from our ceaseless striving, there's always something more to be truly satisfied. There's always something more to be truly satisfied. We'll never really be fulfilled by what we've gained. Satisfaction is always one step ahead of us. And I don't think anyone has captured this idea quite as brilliantly as the actor Jim Carrey at a recent award presentation. So take a look at this video. From the upcoming film True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. <laughs> and when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. <laughs> it would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. <laughs> Isn't that great? Carrie's tongue-in-cheek delivery is kind of on brand for, for Kohelet. His writing sometimes drips of a similar sort of, of sarcasm. But both are warning about the same thing, about putting our hope in achievement because it will never really fulfill us. If work is our only hope, we toil in vain because success outlives us, striving overwhelms us, and satisfaction outpaces us. And we're left asking every kid's favorite question. Why? Why do we have this on-again, off-again relationship with our work? Why does it actually bother us so much that meaning can be super hard to find in our labor? And to see the answer to that question, we actually have to zoom out a bit from the perspective of Ecclesiastes. See, Ecclesiastes is a part of a section of our Bibles that we call the wisdom books. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. It's a part of the wisdom literature. And what the wisdom books are doing is they're taking the overarching themes of Scripture and bringing them down into the ordinary stuff of our daily lives. So it's taking the overarching themes and making them practical for our daily lives. In some ways, they, the, the wisdom books take kind of the big story of God and, if I could say, demystify it a little bit, making it more practical for the murkiness of our daily life. That's why a book like Ecclesiastes is so in touch with the darkness and the weariness and the jadedness of life. But that also means is that books like Ecclesiastes are meant to be read, and they have to be read against the backdrop of the entire redemptive narrative. 
That's how we have to read these kinds of books. And when we do that, when we zoom out a little bit from to view that narrative as a whole, here's what we see, is we were made for meaningful work. We were made for meaningful work. Look with me at, at Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion, subdue. In the parallel account of Genesis 2, we read this, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. So from the very beginning, what we see is this, that God made us to have dominion over the world. God created us to create, to build, to care, to labor, to do all of these things with purpose and with joy. We were made for meaningful work. But after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3 and the fall of human beings. And with that fall, there's a very explicit curse on our work. And the book of Ecclesiastes uses a very specific word for this kind of cursed work. It's the Hebrew word amal, which means literally toil. So just like English and really any other language, Hebrew had multiple different words for the same kind of thing. So there would be different words for one thing. And, and this is one word of many for work. And it describes a very particular kind of work, this word amal. It's used eight times in our passage this morning. Uh, so it kind of forms a little bit of a drumbeat of toil, 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 amal, 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 reinforcing the endless repetition of our striving. And the particular kind of work that Amal talks about is the kind of cursed work in Genesis 3. It's that kind of striving as a result of the fall. It's the restless work. It's the frustrating work. It's the painful and sorrowful and sometimes gainless toil. So here's the tension that lies at the heart of everything we've been talking about this morning. And this is really, really important. We feel so deeply the meaninglessness of our work precisely because we were made for meaningful work. We feel the fruitlessness of our striving precisely because we were made to be fruitful. We feel the pain of our toil even more acutely because we have a deep, God-given impulse to purposefully create and contribute to human flourishing. It's wired in us, and that deepens the sense of of meaninglessness and fruitlessness that we feel. Here's how one scholar described Ecclesiastes and why his experiment leads him to a place of despair. One scholar said his strong emotion is conditioned by the intensity of his hopes, the strength of his desires, the persuasiveness of the promises that motivated his hard work. It is the early persistent love for these things that prompts his present feelings of being spurned and betrayed by them. And the same is true for you and for me. In the moments when we resent our work, it is because our work, both paid and unpaid, is supposed to matter. It's supposed to give us life and joy and purpose. The entire narrative of God bears witness to these twin realities, that our Monday work is often toilsome and our Monday work matters immensely. Both are true. So where does that leave us then on our journey with Kohelet? Some of you might be sitting there and asking his question, what's the point of this sermon? 
Like, what's the point of this passage? Why is it here in my Bible? I think we're supposed to do two things with our passage this morning. The first that we've done very thoroughly, and it's to sit in the murkiness with Kohelet. We've done that a lot. We need to let God give us permission to, to lament the pain and futility that we often feel around our Monday lives. So sit in the murkiness. But here's the second thing I think we're supposed to do with this. I think we're supposed to lean into the hope we have in Christ. I think we're supposed to lean into the hope that we have in Christ. Yes, Ecclesiastes makes it clear, if work is our only hope, we toil in vain. But it's also setting us up to see the end game of God's story. And that's this, that if redemption is our only hope, our labor is not in vain. If redemption is our only hope, our labor is not in vain. See, we live in a culture that holds up work and success and achievement and leaving a mark and making a name for yourself and making a difference. And it says, worship this. Find hope in this. This will deliver you and give you meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And Ecclesiastes is meant to warn us that we can't view work that way. It is all too easy in our culture to make an idol of our work, to worship it as if it can deliver on the promises to make us whole. But as Jim Carrey reminded us, it can't. We'll only be left if we do that with disappointment and despair. So what do we do? One of my favorite uh, TV shows is a TV show called Parks and Recreation. And in Parks and Rec, there are these two kind of somewhat antithetical characters that can help us see what God is inviting us to in response to this passage. The first character is the star of the show, Leslie Nope. And Leslie is someone who is obsessed with her work. She gets all of her value from her success and achievements at work. In many ways, you could say that Leslie is someone who worships her work. And then there's April Ludgate. A young, disenfranchised woman who couldn't care less about anything, really, but especially her work. In many ways, she's kind of like Kohelet 2.0 here. And the thing is, we're not supposed to leave Ecclesiastes as a Leslie, idolizing our work to the point that it consumes us. We're not supposed to do that. On the, at the same time, we're also not supposed to leave Ecclesiastes as an April in such pessimism about the meaning of our work that we give up on it all together. There's a third way. And there's a remarkable passage in Isaiah 65 that gives us that vision for the third way. This is a passage that's looking ahead to the redemption of all things, to the new creation. Here's what it says. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat. That's what Kohelet was worried about, right? For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This is a passage that's looking ahead both to the, the coming of Christ uh, when he will begin to make all things new uh, and to the end of the age when he will complete that work in the new creation. And if there's one thing that's abundantly clear here, it's that every part of creation that was ruined by the fall will be redeemed by the Father. Every part of creation that was ruined by the fall will be redeemed by the Father, and that includes our work. 
The word that the Hebrew uses in Isaiah for work here is a different word. You'll notice it's translated labor and not toil. That's because it's a different Hebrew word. It's not that, that work that's a result of the fall. It's labor that's not in vain. And friends, this here is not a mirage. This is true hope. This is a confidence in an, a future reality that we can lean into to give us energy to live and to work today. My favorite author uh, is J.R.R. Tolkien. If we were at Brookside, someone would probably groan because I talk about him a lot. But he wrote a poem once uh, called Mythopoeia, uh, which is defending the idea that we are called to subcreate. Another way of saying that is that we're called to create in the same way our master created us. And I found these lines so brilliant as he looks ahead to the end game. Here's what he says. He says, the right has not decayed. That's the right that we give, get in Genesis 1 to, to make and to be fruitful, to work. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. Then looking on the blessed land, we'll see that all is as it is and yet made free. Salvation changes not nor yet destroys garden nor gardener, children nor their toys. Another way of saying that is that some of the, something from the things we create will last and endure with us in the new creation. It's talked about in Isaiah when Tolkien says garden and gardener. It's the person who creates and the thing they create. Something will endure with us. Now, I don't know if there's a Super Nintendo in the new creation. I kind of feel like Taco Bell is more of a purgatory thing. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. But I am sure, because of the resurrection, that something of my labor and life will last. And something of yours will too. And here's that especially remarkable thing. On this side of the resurrection, that Isaiah couldn't see, that Ecclesiastes couldn't see, this is also our present reality. You are a part of a kingdom that is already here. Christ is redeeming our work now. You are a co-laborer and a co-ruler with Christ for the flourishing of creation both now and forever. Which means that your work matters for the common good today, here, in the present, as well as in the future new creation. If that is our hope, even when it's hard, our labor is not in vain. And that changes that helps us approach our Monday work in a different way. So I want to ask just three questions as we close, and I want to encourage you to consider these questions throughout the course of your week as you're interacting with your, your Monday life. Three questions that can help us lean into this third way of hope and redemption a little bit more. Here's the first question. What limits do you need to embrace? What limits do you need to embrace? Here's the thing, friends. We weren't made to live like robotic arms overwhelmed by our striving, working ourselves into the ground. No, we are creatures. We were made intentionally, uniquely by God with limits. Are there ways that you have been trying to push the envelope on your limits in your work that have been detrimental to your health, to your family, to your faith maybe even? What human working limits do you need to embrace? Here's a second question. What outcomes do you need to surrender? What outcomes do you need to surrender? 
Do you find yourself struggling with control like Kohelet struggles with control? Are there outcomes or achievements or potential areas of success that are keeping you up at night right now? Or making you work late because you're afraid that they might slip out of your grasp forever? What outcomes do you need to surrender control of and trust God with? Here's the final question I want us to consider in response. What good can you enjoy? In our scripture reading earlier, we heard verse 24, where he says there's nothing better than to enjoy what we have. How can you train your eyes to see and enjoy the good that God has given you? The traces of grace that you can find in the toil of the grind. Are there things that you, you, you have a hard time appreciating because you take them for granted? Or maybe because you're always chasing after more and don't even have time to appreciate them. What good has God given you in your work that you can enjoy and be grateful for? When we embrace our limits, when we surrender control of our outcomes, when we train ourselves to enjoy the good gifts God has given us, we are enabled to lean more fully into the hope of redemption we have in Christ. Even in the midst of our pain and worry, when we're questioning the point of our work, we know with confidence that our labor is not in vain. As I worked on this sermon, a song kept playing over and over in my head. Uh, and I want to close us with the lyrics from this song. It's a song by the band King's Kaleidoscope. And I think it offers us this very hope against the bleakest human experiences. Here's how the lyrics go. It says, living for experiences, I romanticize thrill. I maximize my achievements, but I'm not satisfied still. I'm realizing that all my striving is chasing wind, chasing wind. But you freed me so I can just be. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Friends, when redemption is our only hope, we have the freedom to work with joy because before our Father, we have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to ask the hard questions. Give us the courage to admit our limits, to surrender control. Give us the courage to appreciate the good in the middle of deep hardship. Give us the courage to lament the futility of our work when we feel it. But God, I pray that this week, as we go into our Monday lives, you would make real and tangible to us the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to see the ways even now that you are redeeming our work as you work to make all things new. Help us to have eyes to see that and to join that redemptive work. In Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.